This is a production from The Companion. Sci-fi served fresh. Welcome to The Companion Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Davis, and this is my co-host, Lawrence Cow. Hello, Lawrence. Why, hello there, Rebecca. (laughs) Today, we're bringing you the To Boldly Ask Star Trek interview with George Takei. One of the most impactful topics that got brought up during this interview was George's views on life and death. Was that something that was planned or how did that actually happen? It wasn't a topic that we talked about in development. When Ian and I were planning guests for Tobolli Ask, when Ian and I were planning guests for Tobolli Ask, one of these sad realities is that so many of the cast and crew members that we wanted to speak to on the original series, you know, have sadly passed away. So I'm really glad we were able to bring George in. To me, it's a good reminder that life is short and let's celebrate and cherish the ones we can while we can. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of my podcast, To Boldly Ask. Our goal here at The Companion and To Boldly Ask is to ask our guest questions that they've either never, ever been asked before or at least have very rarely ever been asked. My guest today really needs no introduction whatsoever. It's my honor and your honor to say hello to Mr. George Takei. George, thank you for so much for joining us oh. today. Live long and prosper. There you go. Thanks for doing this, George. We really appreciate it. Let me start with a very deep question for you. If, if George Takei today could whisper into the ear of young George, the day he left the internment camp with his family. What specific wisdom would 85-year-old George impart to his younger self? Clip on the seatbelts real tight. It's going to be a fantastic ride. Fantastic both in positive and negative ways. Life is so unpredictable. So many unpredictable things happening. It's going to be an unbelievable ride. And would you want to give yourself advice if you could? Or no, would you live it as it happens? Clip on the seatbelt and dive into it. Uh, Yes, I've learned a great deal over the uh, journey, but part of life is making discoveries. And I want you, young me, to make those discoveries and plan your path according to that. That's where living life is really. Right. And then on the Trek set in the 1960s, your sexuality was a well-protected secret, I guess is the word we'll use. Today, we've got Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz, who play a gay couple on the show, and they are both openly gay actors. We've got Blue Del Barrio and Ian Alexander, who are trans and non-binary, and we're in a relationship on this show. Discovery showrunner Michelle Paradise is openly gay, and Strange New Worlds had trans actress uh, Jesse James Keitel on as a guest star. So I'm just wondering, how pleased are you that you've lived to see this kind of inclusion? And be honest, how often do you get even a twinge of jealousy that they're experiencing that this way now in a way that you didn't get to? Not jealousy, because I wouldn't be competing for the same roles. Uh, I uh, uh, recognize the passage of time. I lived in my time, and they're living in their time. And in some small way, I contributed to to, to their being able to live in their time, which is what we are enjoying today. It was survival. I passionately loved acting, and I wanted an acting career. And I knew I could not have it if it were known that I was gay. So as a survival thing, I was closeted. And believe me, I would much rather not have been because it was torturous. I'm an activist. I was active in the uh, civil rights movement, uh, uh, African-Americans campaigning for equality. I was active in the peace movement during the Vietnam War. And by that time, I had a a thriving career. And so I joined a Hollywood uh, peace movement called the Entertainment Industry for Peace and Justice. 
EIPJ, uh, where I worked together with people, people like Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland, and particularly with Jane. And uh, so I was involved in all these other uh, social issues, but the one issue that was closest to me, most personal to me, I had to keep hidden. Mm -hmm. And believe me, that was not easy. In fact, it was painful because there were people that gave everything up, their jobs, their careers, some lost their families and they were campaigning for my equality and to remain quiet during all that was torturous mm. and it wasn't until 2005 when I was a beneficiary of the activists uh, the LGBTQ activists the gay liberation people uh things were starting to happen. Massachusetts in 2003 got uh, marriage equality. And two years later in 2005, both houses of the California legislature, this is a people's uh, representatives, Massachusetts got it by uh, uh, the courts. This was through the legislative route that the marriage equality bill was passed. It was a landmark event, which needed just one more vote, mm -hmm. that of the governor, who happened to be a movie star at that time, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And when he campaigned for the governor's seat, he campaigned by saying, I'm from Hollywood. I've worked with gays and lesbians. Some of my friends are gays and lesbians. And so persuaded by that campaign rhetoric, some of my gay friends did vote for him. And when the um, marriage equality bill was passed by both houses of our legislature, they thought Arnold was gonna sign it. I was skeptical because this base is the arch conservative right wing. And sure enough, when the bill landed on his desk, he vetoed it. And I was raging angry. And I assessed my career and the rest of my life. And I thought I've had a good enough career. And Brad and I discussed it and uh, we decided, all right, I am going to come out. And I spoke to the press for the first time mm -hmm. as a gay man. And I blasted Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, uh, veto. And from there, and then I teamed up with the Human Rights Campaign, a uh, LGBTQ uh, lobbying organization in Washington, D.C., and they arranged a nationwide speaking tour. And uh, uh, I've been out and campaigning vigorously, lobbying uh, the, the Congress people and uh, making some achievements then. But most of my adult life, were, uh, what was spent, uh, in the closet, a right. very painful experience. Now, you talked for years about hoping to do a Captain Sulu series, which unfortunately never came to pass, even though the fans wanted it in the worst way, even, even more than you, I would venture to guess. If it had, what do you imagine the weekly adventures of Captain Sulu would have been like? In your head, what did you have? Captain Sulu happened because of my lobby. From the very beginning, uh, as I said, I'm an uh, activist on uh, political issues, but also for my career. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sulu was a groundbreaking role for me. And I thought I'd continue tilling that soil. And I uh, talked with Gene Roddenberry. I talked with uh, the uh, writing staff. And I talked with uh, uh, the directors that passed through about uh, Starfleet. It's supposed to be a meritocracy. And with each episode, you know, we were gaining more experience. And then when the movie started, uh, we were uh, uh, advancing in rank. I became a Lieutenant Commander. And yet I was there at the same old helm seat saying, aye, aye, sir, warp three. I mean, the job was the same. 
-hmm. Only the title had been changed. And I said, there's got to be a reflection of what uh, Starfleet's meritocracy is in our advancement. So I was a lobbyist for Sulu. And uh, in Star Trek II, there was a scene where I actually uh, got my captaincy. However, when we were filming that, uh, it just did not work uh, in rehearsals. And Nick Meyer, who was uh, the director and the writer, said, uh, when I complained to him, he said, I'll fix it in the uh, edit. But clearly he was not able to do that. That scene was cut. And, but I kept on, I don't give up easily. <laughs> <laughs> so I kept on plugging and finally with the Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, uh, it began, the, the, the whole movie is a classic Star Trek episode, beginning, middle and end. It begins with a brand new starship, bigger than the Enterprise, faster than the Enterprise, and with a brand new captain, Captain Sulu in the center seat, confidently sipping his cup of tea, mm -hmm. green tea, mind you. And then Praxis explodes and uh, the pounding uh, drama uh, begins. At the uh, apex of the storytelling, when the aging captain of the Enterprise is threatened by the Klingons and he's about to be blown to smithereens, out of a darkened galaxy sky comes none other than Captain Sulu and the Excelsior and blasts the Klingons to, to smithereens, thus saving the Enterprise and its captain for the next adventure. And at the, the, the classic ending. Target that explosion and fire. There, back on the bridge, Captain Kirk looks up at that uh, view screen, and there's this huge image of Captain Sulu, and he gets up and essentially says, thank you for saving my ass. <laughs> that is a Star Trek, I mean, a, a, a Captain Sulu movie, beginning right. and end. It should have been subtitled, Captain Sue to the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody loved that moment more than you, I am sure, especially oh, let me given the circumstances. <laughs> but again, let me ask you about the TV series that you were hoping to do. On a weekly basis, what did you want to see for Captain Sulu on the ship? In the same way that Sulu, Helmsman Sulu, was there at the helm, part of the leadership team, week after week after week was a powerful statement, groundbreaking. Never had there been a show with that kind of statement being made. And certainly with the captaincy and a brand new ship, a weekly presence of Captain Sulu would have been powerful. It would have been a massive a contribution to uh, uh, the uh, uh, presence of Asians and Asian Americans in this country and in this world. Right. So I, we would continue that. We would get uh, very imaginative sci-fi writers and uh, that image and that presence would continue on on a much more massive scale. Now, you and I have talked many times over the years and you've always joked that when your time comes, when you, when you die, your obituary, every obituary, will say George Decay, Sulu on Star Trek, dead at 112 or whatever the age is. All joking aside, I've never asked you and I've never honestly seen anybody else ask you, what are your thoughts on death? Does it scare you? Are you accepting of it? And honestly, what are your thoughts on the afterlife as well? I said it would have read, here lies Yukaru Sulu, and in the next line, in smaller letters, AKA George Decay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're all wrong. Uh, but your question was uh, What are your thoughts on death? Does it scare you? No, or you no, accept? no, not at all. I'm a Buddhist and I have a very Buddhistic uh, uh, view of both life and death. We believe in the oneness 
uh, with nature. And uh, just to make that metaphor a little bit more um, specific, I'm today the result and, and the uh, 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 pers personification of all that's happened to me in my life and all that I've, that's made me who I am, the food I've eaten, the ideas I've had, the people that have inspired me uh, has made me who I am. And when I lie um, a, 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 a face of mortal death, then I would be buried and uh, the roots of trees would come and become a, a take a, a piece of me. And so I'll be a part of that tree. That's the afterlife or a leaf and a bird might uh, pick at that leaf and I'll be part of the, uh, the, the, that uh, bird. So right now I'm the product of all these other forces that have brought me to this point. And in the same way, when I'm gone, I'll be contributing to the continuum in different forms and shapes. Uh, it's um, a metaphorical use of what uh, the uh, Buddhist uh, belief of uh, life and death is. And what about the Buddhist feeling on the afterlife? Are you, is, does the soul live on? Is there reincarnation? Well, I'm reincarnated in, in that tree or that leaf or that bird. Uh, so, you know, there's a set, a set uh, amount of energy in this planet. And it's the constant changing of uh, those, that, those uh, energy pieces taking different shapes and different form. I'm a different uh, person from that five-year-old kid that we talked about mm -hmm. uh, coming out after internment. I've uh, changed and I'm living the afterlife of that five-year-old boy. But when I go, I will be continuing on with the uh, impressions that I've made in this life, uh, the contributions that I've made in this life, and I will continue on in the new molecular, if you will, uh, shape and forms that I've taken on. It's a, a Buddhistic con uh, concept, and uh, I'll take you to uh, a monastery in Japan sometime so you can get a truer understanding, a better understanding of that philosophy. I would absolutely go with you. I would be fascinated and honored. If We're going next month to Japan. You want to come with us? <laughs> sure. Buy me a ticket. I'm right there. <laughs> if, if any other credit or role in your career could have been as popular and long-lived as Sulu and Star Trek, what do you wish it was and why? Well, I've done many shows that uh, I enjoyed doing, um, but they were complete works of art by themselves. Uh, I did uh, a, a stage play called Year of the Dragon, which uh, we later filmed for television, um, uh, American theater. This was back in 1974, uh, uh, but that was a complete story. Uh, to carry that on would have been uh, interesting. Um, all my, the shows that I really enjoyed doing, uh, were not uh, popular show, shows like uh, Star Trek. I guess, if anything, of the series, uh, Heroes was one, and that I would have enjoyed uh, continuing with that. I thought it was worthy of uh, a longer life than uh, it got. In the, in the second season, the writer's strike uh, put a stop to the uh, production, mm -hmm. and when we got, uh, picked up, it was about a year and a half afterwards. So when you have a break like that, it's difficult to uh, 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 gin up the audience again. And so it just got, got another uh, season. I think they had, uh, it had three seasons all, all together. So, so uh, that would be the series that I think I would like to have uh, gone on uh, much longer. Right, that was Tim Kring, who was the, the creator writer of the show. Right, and I, right. I'm guessing he was a Star Trek fan because he had you on. Yes. He had, he had Nichelle on, and little did he know, but Zachary Quinto would go on 
to, to play Spock in the J.J. Abrams movies. Well, the reason for Nichelle coming on was uh, when I came on, the, the ratings exploded. Star Trek fans uh, started watching. As a matter of fact, the, the prop man was a Star Trek fan as well. Hmm. And uh, when they had a shot of my limousine driving off, uh, he created uh, a license plate for my limousine, NCC 1701. Uh, and uh, the uh, fans who uh, noticed that just uh, went up to high heaven and they uh, and the uh, uh, the letter writing and the ratings went up. And so they, they said, oh, well, there's another Star Trek person that might be available. And they contacted Nichelle. That was great. And let's talk about Nichelle since we just lost her. There's no deep question that I, there are a million deep questions that I can ask on this, but l let's start with your fondest memory of Nichelle. When you think of this woman, what comes to mind? Is it you know, there, there are many, many fond memories that I have. But I think putting them all together, the most memorable was, I, was when I first met her. I was doing a civil rights musical called Fly Blackbird in Los Angeles. It became a, a, a big hit. Uh, it ran for 11 months in Los Angeles, which uh, um, was considered a big hit. And uh, uh, during the end of that run, Nichelle came to see the show and uh, came backstage. She knew a couple, couple of people in the cast. And so she came backstage and she was introduced to me. And I was stunned first by her beauty, but she, I, uh, in those days, uh, African-American women uh, conked their hair, um, straightening it with chemicals and so forth and shaping it into uh, the current fashion. Her hair was absolutely proudly natural and was a great huge sphere, a helmet over her head, enormous helmet, all natural and frizzy. And she, the way she carried it off with pride and with dignity and with charm. Uh, I, 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 when I was introduced to her, I thought she is amazing, an amazing woman. She is an individual and a proud individual. And uh, a year or two later, when uh, we got started on Star Trek, it was announced that uh, she, uh, when we shot the pilot, uh, she was not available. And so we had an African-American -Amer uh, man play the uh, communications officer in the uh, 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 second pilot. There were two pilots made. Mm -hmm. And uh, when that sold, Gene uh, got Nichelle uh, to play that role. And I met her again at the table read uh, when we began the filming on it. And we talked about uh, uh, my uh, meeting her and, uh, and she didn't have her natural then. Um, there was a little bit conked. <laughs> but uh, that was how my... Uh, relationship, a deep, profound relationship with Nichelle began. Uh, as you know, I've run for public office. I've uh, put together a lot of uh, fundraising campaigns uh, for various uh, uh, candidates. And uh, I could always call on uh, Nichelle uh, to uh, be the performer, star performer at uh, any of the dinners that we uh, set up. And uh, she was a dear, dear friend. And I wanted to ask you to share an anecdote you shared with me, which I had never heard before the first time you told it to me, which is the one when you were on the Fab Four tour doing conventions and she ended up rooming with you. <laughs> Can you share that story? I don't know that a lot of people have heard that, George. I don't think too many people have. Uh, and I, I'm surprised that I, I did share with you. I've been very discreet about that. <laughs> um, it was... Uh, convention at the Charleston, West Virginia. And we were flying into uh, uh, Pittsburgh and then connecting from Pittsburgh to uh, Charleston. And there was an enormous uh, storm happening. Uh, we thought we would uh, <laughs> die. The plane was uh, dropping and going, uh, working its way up. It took forever uh, for us to be able to be able to land in Pittsburgh. 
And by the time we landed, our connecting flight had uh, taken off and uh, it was uh, a sheer chaos. Some, all the planes coming into uh, uh, Pittsburgh uh, had the same problem. And so um, they said that the next flight that they could uh, get for us was um, the uh, following morning, uh, very early on. And so we thought, well, all right, then we're not gonna camp out at the airport. Uh, we'll uh, go to a, a hotel nearby, but all the hotels were booked up. And uh, so uh, Walter and I were making phones. Uh, Jimmy was with us as well. Uh, um, uh, we, we made phone calls all over the place. And the only place that we could get um, uh, uh, that, that, that had vacancies was like about uh, 15, 20 miles away. Uh, but we thought that's the only way we can, uh, if that's the only way we can uh, get a room, uh, th that'll have to be. And we got in, uh, in a cab and arrived there uh, in the late uh, night hour. hour. And uh, then uh, uh, we ch uh, uh, check, tried to check in and they said, well, we do have uh, uh, two vacancies. Uh, the, and, and they're uh, each doubles. And so uh, uh, one of you will have to uh, double up. It was three guys and one gal, Jimmy, Walter, and me, and Michelle. And uh, so we decided, well, we'll, uh, we'll uh, draw a uh, uh, pause. Uh, so we uh, cut um, strips of paper and we drew the straw and uh, the short straw was drawn by me. So I was planning on being a gentleman. And I, uh, when we walked in, I said, uh, you have a bed, I'll uh, sleep on the couch. And she said, darling, I know who you are. Get your body on this bed. <laughs> <laughs> she knew. Um, most of the cast knew because, you know, actors are sophisticated people. And when we had our uh, rap parties uh, Friday nights, um, people brought their uh, girlfriends or wives or their husbands or their boyfriends uh, and the beer would rolled it, be rolled in and so, uh, the pizza would be brought in and we um, enjoyed each other's company. And more often than not, I brought a buddy. And so they, they you know, they, the, what, the perceptive ones knew that I was gay, but they didn't say anything because they knew that it would be damaging to me. So I appreciated that very much. But that was when I knew that Nichelle knew <laughs> that yeah. I was who I was. She says, darling, I know who you are. <laughs> Great story. Who was your favorite actor as a kid? That was, I don't know whether you recognize the name or not, Tab Hunter. Sure. Absolutely. He, he was a gorgeous young blonde movie star, uh, always taking his shirt off in, in, in the movies. He was a Warner Brothers contract actor and uh, he was big box office for them. And he, uh, he was starring in almost every other movie that came out, came out from Warner Brothers. And uh, I was in love with him. He was my heartthrob. Until, until? Until one of the scandal sheets exposed him as being gay. And then he vanished. And so that was a strong message to me. You can't be gay and expect to work as an actor. There, here he was, a big box office star with a major studio, starring in all their uh, uh, films. But when he was exposed as gay, mm -hmm. gone. Right. Didn't John Waters kind of rediscover him much later in his career? Much later, much later. He was uh, much more mature, yes. And it was uh, uh, um, a, a kind of a, a giggle type role. <laughs> right. And then who was your gay icon in your life once you realized you were gay? Was you know, there somebody before Tab Hunter? 
there was no icon. Gay icons didn't exist then. And so, I, uh, you know, I, if anything, it was, um, I can't remember the name of the guy. Uh, there was uh, a young soldier uh, in the army uh, who had served heroically in Vietnam. But when he was discovered uh, to be gay, he was kicked out. Hmm. It was such an outrage. He was serving with honor, with great heroism, as a matter of fact, and uh, an outstanding soldier. And the only thing that got him kicked out was the fact that he was oriented to other men. It was such a cruel, uh, he was a, a wonderful, uh, a, I would venture to say a, a perfect uh, soldier. And yet he was kicked out and disgraced and humiliated. It was outrageous what the, what the military did, did then. It's a changed world today now because of events like that happening. Now there are women generals who are gay uh, there are, um, uh, well, uh, gay people serving in the military, uh, women serving in the military uh, that are straight. It, uh, we become a much more uh, accepting society of diversity in all its forms. As Gene Rodberry said, infinite diversity in infinite combinations. And our society is that. And I'm glad that our society has advanced like that. Uh, and I was a contributor in part to that after I came out. What's still on your bucket list? I don't believe in a bucket list. I, I do what, I, what fascinates me or a place that fascinates me and go there. Uh, because, you know, people who have bucket lists uh, keep putting it off and putting it off until when they retire or... Uh, whatever uh, bench, uh, benchmark they set. And by that time, they're too old to be able to do it. You know, I climbed Mount Fuji when I was a young student. I've, um, I climbed to the top of uh, Ben Nevis, uh, the tallest peak in uh, Scotland. Or uh, in uh, uh, Vienna, I went to the uh, uh, tip top of uh, St. Stephen's Cathedral. Uh, or at the, at, um, at the Vatican, I went, uh, climbed, I didn't, I didn't take the lift up, but I, I did, did the sta stairs by muscle power and uh, went to the roof of the Vatican and saw all the statuary up there, uh, up close, and, all, and also that vista from the top. I believe in doing things when you want to do them and not pushing it off to some uh, magical time when it's time for the bucket list. And what's your guilty pleasure, George? Guilty pleasure. <laughs> I indulge in it much too often. Uh, Brad is here listening. I love ice cream. Ooh, what flavor? And, uh, all, all, all the different flavors. I love chocolate but it's got to be deep, dark, bittersweet chocolate. But they come up with all these wonderful concoctions nowadays. Uh, a rocky Road with all the uh, mix of nuts and... Uh, marshmallows. Uh, yeah, marshmallows. So the contrast of uh, soft and, and crunchy and, and the uh, chocolatey taste. Uh, but it's uh, my favorite is clean, pure, deep, dark uh, chocolate. There you go. All right, let's get to the show and tell section, which I personally love because it's items that you have to show me and things that I have to show you. So oh. my understanding is you have a plaque. Can you show me this and show everybody? And yes. tell us a little about it. This is a uh, USS Excelsior plaque that was given to me by a fan at a convention and uh, uh, I'm, I'm proud of my association with uh, Excelsior, what it stands for. And, and so that's something that I, I've, I've kept. Um, here's another thing that 
I got uh, at a convention in uh, in Chatham, England, of all places. Uh, I I was doing a pantomime. Uh, do you know what a pantomime is? Sure. Yes. Uh, it's a holiday um, theatrical melange of uh, it's like a musical with uh, uh, a variety show and dancing and so forth and uh, it's also a telephone <laughs> oh my oh my the uh, it says NCC Here we are. I was going to say you broke the enterprise. No, it was that's the uh, receiver, and that's on. <laughs> There's a photo of the entire cast of uh, Star Trek there, and it's placed in front of that, and it's in such a visible place when visitors come. That's the first thing that they notice, and I go into a, a spiel on the my Star Trek background. Uh, this is a um, Christmas ornament from Hallmark. And uh, the wonderful thing about Star Trek was like being part of uh, a repertory company. Uh, you don't play the same character uh, every week, but some variation of that same character. In this one, um, I got to be a villain, a cutthroat, vicious villain with a scar on his uh, forehead. And that was great fun doing. But from my favorite episode, Naked Time, and a cowering, <laughs> frightened Captain Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that Captain Kirk or is that William Shatner? Come on. Well, Sulu admired Captain Kirk. Um, George Takei was not a fan of uh, Bill Shatner. <laughs> Fair enough. I know I've got some... came... Go ahead. Sorry. Part of that uh, comes through in this. <laughs> it's a great piece. It's a great piece. Great fun. Great fun. All right. Now we've got some things to show you. So if we can flash that photo, uh, the video actually, first, I guess. Is there some... Oh. <laughs> George Takei Washington, America's first president. That's uh, oh Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> okay, so George let me, Washington. Let me take you through this, George. You served as master's master of ceremonies at an event in 1988 that I brought you in for back in my PR days, uh, where we were honoring recently naturalized American citizens. It was held at the Citicorp Center. You pressed the button uh, to light the Citicorp Center. We got in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's largest illuminated American flag. And you were the guy who pressed the button on that. And then earlier this summer, you were on Kimmel, obviously, uh, patriotically honoring recently naturalized American citizens. So it struck me that this is 30 something years later, 34 years later that we're talking. How full circle is all of that kind of a thing for you. And I actually have a photo of you and I together at that event, which I think we can post as well. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, literally coming full circle, supporting recently naturalized American citizens. There we are at the, uh, there at we the are. event. Look at, look at that hair. Look how dark yours look is. That. Look how much I had. <laughs> yes, that's what happens when you have children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Blame my kids, right. Um. You know, I, I don't, I just don't understand why immigration is a issue in the United States. That is what makes the United States great. And we should, we should celebrate people coming from all over and becoming Americans. It's a, it's a, a flattering commentary on this country. And yet, um, some of these political, political crazies uh, have made it a, a negative issue and exacerbated our whole attitude toward immigrations, immigration. I mean, I'm the grandson of immigrants and we all are 
nation, we're a nation of immigrants. We're all descendants of uh, immigrants uh, coming from somewhere, someplace, sometime. Uh, how, how many uh, generations are you removed uh, uh, from uh, uh, the immigrant generation, uh, Ian? My, my parents, my mom's parents were from Russia and Poland. Uh, they were both born and raised in Brooklyn. And same thing with my dad, actually. They were both, uh, his parents were both born and raised in Brooklyn, but their parents uh, were in uh, Europe as well. Uh, so it was really interesting because that's where my mom and dad met in Brooklyn, which is where so many immigrants settled. I think, you know, the, the reason why immigration has become such a, a political issue is because uh, most immigrants to this country uh, in the uh, uh, 19th and 20th century came from Europe, mm. as your uh, uh, grandparents did. And uh, my grandparents came from Asia. Uh, and now the uh, immigrants coming in are largely from Latin America, mm -hmm. from uh, uh, Mexico, Central America, and uh, South America. And uh, it's race, race, uh, racism that comes into play, and it's become this horrific uh, political issue. Uh, but our strength in, is in our diversity, as Gene Roddenberry said on Star Trek. We come from all over the world, and we get, come together contributing our uniqueness our special talents and our vantage point to making the American view that much more uh, vibrant, stronger, and uh, more uh, progressive, reflecting uh, the advances that we as Americans make in society. So many of the older uh, civilizations don't move forward as, as rapidly and as dynamically as the United States does. And we need to recognize that. Uh, immigration is what, and right now we have uh, uh, just last uh, month, uh, um, we uh, create uh, the, the economy created 525,000 uh, new jobs. New jobs. And our unemployment rate is way down. We don't have enough people to fill the jobs that are being created. And so we've got to really rethink this whole issue of immigration, uh, making it much more uh, 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 traditional in accepting immigrants come, coming in who are, you know, Silicon Valley, the uh, CEO or the uh, administrators of, uh, of the great. Uh, technological firms are largely from India now. So we are benefiting from the fact that uh, the uh, talented people coming from India uh, is to, uh, are contributing to uh, our economy. So we have to really rethink our approach to uh, uh, immigration. And here's a fun one. Issa Briones shared a photo of herself when she was 12 years old. Uh, wearing it, it's okay, there it is. It's an It's Okay to BTK t-shirt from her school photo shoot. And then she shared another photo of herself more recently during the pandemic, wearing that same shirt. There's that photo. Now, oh, no. you, all grown up, yep. Uh, now you worked with her dad, John John, on Allegiance, and she starred for two seasons on Star Trek Picard. Uh, and then he later guest starred on Star Trek Picard. And I know you've met Isa at a convention or two along the way. So again, these full circle moments keep coming to you, George. What does it mean to you to see Isa and John John on Star Trek specifically, and then just in general to be succeeding in their careers? Well, uh, first of all, uh, John John is a very talented uh, actor. Uh, he was in the uh, ensemble of uh, uh, Allegiance in San Diego. And then when we um, uh, went on Broadway, um, he, um, he was still with us in, in the ensemble, but he was a real nice guy. And he was also very proud of his children. And uh, he asked me to sign some photos for his children. I didn't uh, meet his children until uh, um, 
Issa presented herself to me at the, a Star Trek convention and she is charming and delightful. And we did a cruise together and I saw her perform. She's a wonderful actress and a, a very, very gifted uh, person on so many levels. And I think I see stardom coming her way. We live in a society now where she can become a star. She has all the elements there. So I'm delighted for both uh, John John and, uh, and Issa. Uh, John's uh, uh, career is um, flourishing as well. Uh, I forget the, the uh, name of the uh, TV series he did where he played a corrupt uh, uh, hospital. Ratchet, Ratchet. It was the Ratchet. Nurse Ratchet, Ratchet series. Nurse Ratchet, yeah. Uh, and he, he's, he's, he's a wonderful actor and, uh, and a great singer as well. So it, uh, yes, it's wonderful having uh, friends uh, that uh, are uh, succeeding and uh, moving forward in their careers. And we've got about 10 minutes left. So I think we do have time to get this one other photo in. You ran for city council in 1973. And if I'm not mistaken, you came in second with 33% of the vote. If you had won, George, how different do you think your life might have been? Could you have juggled acting and political office? Might you have pursued politics or a higher office rather than acting? Looking another, back, what do you think would have happened? Another iffy question. <laughs> Life is full of iffy questions. That's right. It's, it's all about the roads taken and not taken, right? Exactly, the fork in the road. Uh, and I tantalized myself with that very same question. Uh, had I won, I would. I think I would have had to give up my acting career. Uh, the thing with uh, acting is uh, it's not a steady job. You'd finish the picture and there's a long uh, interregnum. Uh, certainly with my career, it hasn't been one where I have another project waiting for me or a TV series. Uh, a series uh, assures some continuity. And uh, with uh, politics, it's just like that. You run for office and you don't win. So there, there you are again at liberty, as they say. So uh, uh, I tantalized myself with the idea that perhaps I could have uh, pursued two parallel careers, one in uh, public service and another in uh, uh, pursuing an uh, acting career. But that's my ego that says it. I think one would have to make a commitment one way or the other. And had I won, I certainly would. I mean, that's why I ran. I was prepared to make that commit, commitment to a public service. And so uh, uh, that's the route that I would have uh, followed had fortune not been with me. And then let's talk before we end this about Asian Americans and where Asian Americans as a a people are in America right now. Equality and awareness have made such strides, but I have a feeling there's been a setback as a result of the pandemic, uh, a, a kind of a new wave of Asian American hate in some people out there. You're shaking your head. No, you don't agree? I don't. Okay. Racism is the original uh, sin of this country. And uh, with Asians, it's been cyclical, one horrific event and it surfaces and then it fades. And then another event and it surfaces and it fades. And then another event and it, it, uh, it becomes uh, intense. For us Japanese Americans, Pearl Harbor was it. The country was swept up with race hate, uh, hatred, uh, war hysteria, and the elected officials got swept up by that. From the president on down, Roosevelt, you know, in the uh, 30s, when uh, the nation was in an economic depression, said, there is nothing to fear but fear itself, to those people who were spiritually de uh, depressed. You couldn't have a country uh, that depressed and hope to uh, raise the uh, economy. So he got them, pulled them out of that economic, uh, spiritual depression and built the, uh, the uh, American uh, economy that was uh, a, a strong, a resilient uh, economy. But 
when Pearl Harbor happened, that was a surprise attack. We weren't prepared for it. And he realized that he had a, the whole West Coast open and vulnerable to attack. And so he became fearful. A man who said there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And he focused on Americans of Japanese ancestry simply because we look like this as potential spies, saboteurs, or fifth columnists, and ordered all of us, all of us, to be rum, uh, rounded up and imprisoned with no due process. The American uh, ju uh, justice system is based on equal justice under the law, based on due process. When you're arrested, you have the right to know why you're being arrested, the charge. And then you have the right to challenge those charges in a court of law where the accuser has to pro uh, provide the evidence of those charges. And if there is no evidence, you're, uh, you're set free. If there is evidence, then you are punished. In our case, there was no charge and therefore no trial. It was in the most un-American way with no due process that we were rounded up and imprisoned. Our businesses were taken, our homes were taken, our bank account was taken, stripped of everything, uh, treating us like the enemy. In fact, they categorized us as enemy aliens, which was crazy. My mother was born in Sacramento, California. She was an American and she was categorized as enemy alien. My father was born in Japan, but brought to San Francisco when he was a boy and he was raised, educated, went to college uh, in San Francisco. He was like a Japanese American, except for his birth and categorizes enemy aliens and imprisoned in the most cruel and unjust way. And so uh, racism is at the core. And uh, we tend to be uh, ethnocentric. Japanese Americans uh, have gotten to the point where we see it a little bit broader, broadly and uh, identify with other Asian Americans. And we work as Asian Americans, but at the core, it's racism and an even greater continuing uh, vic uh, victimization of, uh, of people by uh, uh, racism is the African Americans. Since 1618, uh, when the first uh, Africans were brought to this country as, as, as uh, slaves, we had that uh, racism problem. And so what we need to do is recognize that the core issue is racism and the people that have been uh, struggling with racism the longest, most continuously are the African-Americans through slavery, through uh, uh, Jim Crow, through the civil rights movement to what we're going through now, uh, um, uh, George Floyd or um, Breonna T uh, Taylor, where the fact that you're black already means the police draw their guns for maybe a, a, a expired license plate for, for a minor offense. And if there's some resistance, they're, they're shot. Racism is, is the problem. And so you call this uh, to boldly ask, well, I've been campaigning with the uh, Asian Americans, we mustn't be so ethnocentric and say uh, Asian hate. It's racism that's uh, uh, across the board to all people, uh, minority people. And racism is what comes into play with the immigration issue as well, because they are dark and uh, speak a different language and uh, uh, culturally very different. And so, uh, we, uh, there's a, a bill, H.R. Uh, 40, to form a congressional commission to study the history of racism in this country, and particularly uh, uh, focused on uh, the racism against African-Americans. And Asian-Americans and Latino-Americans need to support that bill, H.R. 40, because 
it is getting at the core against a uh, core of the uh, issue of Asian hate or uh, Latino racism. But we still have to deal with this cyclical racism that looms up when something horrible against uh, 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 that affect Asians uh, happen. For example, um, when we were incarcerated, it was Pearl Harbor. Uh, in the uh, 80s, when uh, the advent of uh, Japanese automobile uh, uh, was making an impact on Detroit, and there were many uh, unemployed Det uh, uh, auto workers in Detroit, and this Chinese American was mistaken for Japanese, a man named uh, Vincent Chin, and he was battered to death by uh, a, a baseball bat simply because he looked like us. And uh, uh, the, the two murderers were dragged into court and the judge said he understood the anguish of unemployed auto workers and essentially let them go with a slap on the uh, uh, hand, uh, uh, a few thousand dollars uh, fine, and uh, and uh, uh, probation, and that galvanized the Asian American community so that they had to uh, bring another uh, charge uh, charge against them of uh, a civil rights uh, issue, and they were tried again, but they disappeared, and they essentially got away scot free, and then again in recent times we had a president who kept talking about. China flu and uh, 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 Wuhan flu or Kung flu and the yahoos, the racist uh, ignorance uh, uh, started assaulting people just because they look Asian and particularly elderly. I mean, the racists uh, who attack are cowards. They don't uh, pick on people who uh, can who can defend themselves. Right. It's these uh, feeble, feeble uh, elderly people that get uh, uh, attacked. And and well, I think of one this Thai man uh, in Oakland who was walking down the sidewalk, and this <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, a young man came running down the sidewalk with all that momentum and smacked him down on the sidewalk. Right. gave him a concussion and he, he was killed. I mean, that kind of outrage happening or a woman in Times Square, Asian, Asian American woman who gets shoved in front of a subway uh, car and is run over. Uh, it's cyclical, some horrific event and that horror sweeps across the country and the uh, racists come to the fore. Right. We need as Americans to recognize that the core issue is racism and it affects people that look like me or people that look like latinos or uh, african-americans it's all the same the source is the same and we've got to address that as uh the cure for this constant continuing uh subjugation of uh, minority people to uh cruelty and outrageous uh, injustice. It is racism, period. That's America's original sin. And George, last question for you. We want you to shout out for a charity, actually. So it's not a question, it's a statement. What's a charity that you support that if people follow you, you would steer them towards and why? I'm one of the founders of the Japanese American National Museum. It is the preeminent museum uh, that uh, examines uh, the issue of American diversity with, from the perspective of uh, the Japanese American lens. George, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad you joined us on To Boldly Ask. I hope I boldly asked you a question or two that were fresh for you. You certainly have. And thank it's you. been a joy talking with you and reminiscing with you. Always, always a pleasure, George. Thank you so much. Be well. Live long and prosper, particularly in this COVID age. There you go. Peace and love, my friend. You be well. Take care. Hi there. 
This is Chief Master Sergeant Walter Harriman, your favorite gatekeeper. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become a certified Stargate technician? Well, now you can find out because I'm going to share my knowledge and experience with a select group of aspiring and enthusiastic gators. I want to give you a chance to be a hero too. That's why I'm happy to announce that on March 11th, I'll be taking a small number of students for my class, Gate Tech 101. Tickets are on sale now at thecompanion.app slash events. You won't want to miss this because it's not just a Stargate Masterclass. It's a Stargate Chief Master Sergeant class. See you there. But for now, Chevron 7 is locked.